0: The scripture for the sermon this morning is found in the epistle of 1 John. You'll also find this passage printed on the right side of your bulletin if you wish to look there. 1 John chapter 4 verses 13 through 16. Let us hear the word of God. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we give you thanks for these words that your Holy Spirit inspired the pen of the Apostle John to write. We ask, Heavenly Father, that our consideration of them this morning, Lord, and more than just a consideration, Lord, our reveling in them, our drinking deep of them, Lord, that these things over these next few minutes, Lord, would be glorifying to you as it is a benefit to your people, Lord. For you are glorified when your people are so blessed. Give your word success, Heavenly Father, I pray. May it return not void. May it Heavenly Father be may it be Heavenly Father a banquet to us, a feast, Lord, far more filling than any of those that we've had over the past days. May it be an abiding feast, Lord. You have greatly blessed your people. May we rejoice before you. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine yourself for a few moments as a man in a wilderness place. Perhaps you've seen some of this wilderness before, but where you're going this time, you've not been before. You have no map, the whole lay of the land you do not know, and yet you must get to this place. Now... That's kind of a tall order for us this morning, to imagine something like that, because nowadays we've mapped practically everything. We can pull up images on the Internet of our rooftops. We can have GPSs in our cars that tell us the best way to get someplace, or supposedly the best way, and then find out that it wasn't we can map quest our way to somebody's house, and we can also find that it didn't take us to the right place. But imagine all of that not yet invented. You are in the wilderness, and you must go to a place you've never been. But the wilderness is not like what we call a wilderness here in eastern Tennessee. Here we call a wilderness those areas largely devoid of people, but still rich in vegetation and abounding in water, the rugged mountain regions. But there, it's a desert place, either flat or rugged. Nonetheless, water is precious, hard to find here and there. There is heat and cold typical of desert places. Shade from the daytime sun, it's sparse. It is a place that would seem inhospitable to life And you can easily imagine yourself perishing in it. But the thought of perishing in such a place is multiplied by the number of people that you're leading. For it is not you by yourself. There is a great multitude with you and you are leading them. And you feel some measure of responsibility for them. Now, what could be more needed in this situation than a trustworthy guide? Someone who knows the land, who knows the routes to travel by, who knows where the oases are. Someone who can navigate you through this desert. And what would be more crushing, devastating to you than any departure of that guide? For this mission to succeed, both guide and follower must continue one with the other each in the way appropriate. If the guide departs so that his directions can no longer be passed on, failure is certain. If you do not accept the guidance, do not take the directions, then likewise, all will be lost. You are not going to survive in this place without such help, present and accepted." Thinking of this situation, I think, helps us understand why it is such a sad word in Exodus 33 that Moses receives and that he has to pass on to the Israelites when God says that he himself will not go with them in their midst as they go up to the promised land. Indeed, God says that if he goes with them, he might destroy them because of their obstinacy Shown in worshiping the golden calf at Mount Sinai. They had not continued with their guide. Their guide has now said he will not continue with them. Though an angel is promised to go with them, that is insufficient for Moses. For apart from God's going with them himself, how will he be assured of the Lord's favor upon him and upon them? How will they be distinguished from the people of the world apart from the Lord's being with them? And so Moses pleads with the Lord on two occasions at least for this very thing. And the Lord answers his request that he himself will go up with them. The fulfillment of this promise we read of in Numbers chapter 10, when at last, after all of the proper instruction for the orderly departure of the people is given, that the cloud of God's glory is lifted from the tabernacle. And the Israelites move out in orderly fashion, the Lord going before them. Their guide faithfully abides with them, as Psalm 105 tells us, but we know that their abiding with God was flawed at best. Psalm 106 tells us that. And the journey took a whole generation because of it. I think this illustrates in some measure what is meant by a phrase that comes three times in this morning's passage. It comes in different ways. In verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. In verse 15, God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16 speaks of one who abides in God and God abides in him. To abide means to continue, to dwell, and it's among John's favorite words. It is a word that he treasured from the teachings of Jesus, so precious to him that he recorded it in his gospel account Read John chapter 15, where he speaks about the vine and the branches. Notice two things. First, the abiding is mutual. We abide in him and he in us. As in the example that I gave, the guide must abide with the follower and the follower must abide with the guide. Second, notice that the abiding is not with, but it is an abiding in. And that points to something deeper, perhaps, than my example suggests. Now, the Apostle John has already used this term abide quite a bit in this letter, but usually with regard to the abiding of one party in the other, not the mutual abiding that is three times stated here. John has spoken about our abiding in God before. Our personal holiness rests on it. In John, uh, 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides in him, meaning God, keeps sins or keeps on sinning. Or 1 John 2, verses 5 and 6, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked The godliness of our conduct depends upon this abiding. Any claim on our part of such an abiding ought to be proved by the manner of our lives lived before God and before the world so that God's name be hallowed. Is it any wonder, then, that we are exhorted, commanded by John, two times at the end of the second chapter, to abide in him Given what God has given you and what benefits you've gained because of it, abide in him. Because of what is to come that our Lord Jesus is returning, abide in him so that we face that day in confident expectation rather than in dread. But John has also written even more times of God abiding in us. In the verse just before this morning's passage... Chapter 4, verse 12, we read this. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Not only God himself, but the things of God are said to abide in the believer. The love of God is said to abide in the believer. Chapter 3, verse 17. As our eternal life, chapter 3, verse 15, and God's seed, verse 9 of that chapter, The testimony of the apostles, indeed the word of God, is said to abide in the believer. At The end of the second chapter. Now, it is only natural that as John has written about our abiding in God and of God and the things of God abiding in us, that he would combine the two and write of this mutual abiding, one in the other. And that is the way that Jesus spoke when speaking about the vine and the branches in John 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. John has also already mentioned mutual abiding once before in this letter at the end of the third chapter. Verse 24, starting in verse 23, actually. This is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Here John is related mutual abiding to obedience and our understanding of Jesus and in our love for one another. In this morning's passage, he writes of mutual abiding three times, each time connecting it with something different, but all three of those, as we'll see, related to one another. Now, there is nothing more vital than this mutual abiding. When we see what it's connected with, we will see it as vital as it is as vital as God's presence was to Moses leading the Israelites in the wilderness, you will die deserted and parched without it, as the Israelites would have without the bright cloud of God's glory lifting and descending. If you perceive that, if you have any interest in your state before God at all, you should be concerned as to how to know if these things are true of you. You will desire to have assurance that God abides in you and you in him, knowing what's at stake, whether you are indeed a Christian or whether instead the wrath of God abides on you. I think it clear that is why John mentions these things. For again, even from the beginning of the letter, he has made clear he writes these things to the increase of fellowship and to the fullness of joy. So you should listen to these things and ask questions of yourselves. Is this so of me? Are there the signs in me of those things which the Apostle John takes as evidence of mutual abiding? Two, I hope that in showing how these things are related... That God and his working will be glorified. That we creatures will be humbled. For John mentions these things as he does for a purpose. I'm going to take them in the opposite order that John mentions them. But I hope that in doing so, I show you why he mentions them in the order that he does. First, Let us look at verse 16, where we encounter this mutual abiding the third time in John's text. Verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Here, the mutual abiding between God and the believer, we in him and him in us, is connected with abiding in love. This love refers to the brotherly love to be had between believers. That's clear, I think, from the context. If you look at verses 7 through 12 before it, if you look at verses 19 through 21 that follow it. So, the, so one evidence of the mutual abiding between God and the Christian is to be Christian brotherly love. This was indeed the thing by which the world was to know that we are indeed Christ's disciples. So it is both a sign to the world and an evidence to us. On this, of course, the Apostle John has written before in this letter. The first time he turned to brotherly love, he showed in it an abiding in the light. That is the one true light, the light of the world who is the sun, the God who dwells in light and accessible, the father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning and in whom there is no darkness at all. <clears throat> first John chapter two, starting in verse nine. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness. Until now, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If we abide in this light, we have no cause for stumbling in us. Examples of our failing in this matter abound in the scriptures, if not in our own lives. Do you find your prayers hindered? Do you find going to prayer a difficult thing, a feeling that it would not be honest to go to God at this time? No, not now, not after that. Scripture testifies of how this may come about in a marriage, this hindering of prayers. When a husband lives with his wife without understanding and not honoring her as a fellow heir, of the grace of life. 1 Peter 3 7. Conversation with God is damaged greatly because it is a disharmony, a dissonance with the one with whom we are most intimate. We are always most hurt in our most intimate of relations, and so you can be sure that in the degree of unity that one is to have in a church, that disharmony and hatred there too will be a cause for hindering of prayers, for stumbling in prayers. John has also connected brotherly love with the Christian abiding, uh, rather with eternal life abiding in the Christian, the Christian not abiding in death. 1 John 3, chapter 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now few, I pray, among us this morning are those who've taken the lives of others. But Christ tells us how we can murder with our tongues. Do we backbite? Do we gossip? Do we fume or discuss rather than go to the one who we perceive has injured us and tell him the fault? I know there are dozens of reasons that we can invent for not doing that. I've rehearsed them myself. But we should know that it's disobedience to Christ's words in Matthew 18 that causes us to think of those reasons. Should we not rather resolve to speak with our brother directly or let this be among the multitude of sins that's covered by love? Do we desire life for our brother or death? Brothers, is it not a shameful thing that Paul must write to the Galatians these words in chapter 5? For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But... If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Think of it. The scriptures see fit to warn a church against biting, devouring, consuming one another. What wretchedness! Or even think of a church as loving as that of Philippi, which gave so sacrificially of themselves to Paul's ministry and yet has within it those who must be encouraged in unity. But not only should our brotherly love be a mere refraining from injury, but a doing of positive good for others, as those in the church of Philippi did. John also writes of that, 1 John 3, starting in verse 16, we know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Our goods, our lives indeed, It's not enough merely that we don't slander our brothers with our tongues, or even that we well-wish them with our tongues, but our love is to be in deed as well as in word. Do we regard our brother as better than ourselves, so that we can consider his needs before our own? So we may ask ourselves, how do I regard my brother in Christ? The love that we are to have for one another cannot be overemphasized. Look at how often and how many varied ways John has mentioned it in this epistle. And he's not through yet. Look at the verses scan over them, the verses that are to come. As I said, it is the thing chosen of Christ to be the sign of the world that we are his disciples. Paul counts it as the chief virtue. The greatest of those among those faith, hope and love is love. Without it, all manner of things we might count as good are as nothing. Am I gifted in speaking? You can judge that. But without love, I might as well be a noisy gong. Are you, are you possessed of all manner of knowledge? Or do you have faith to move mountains without love? Yet nonetheless, you are nothing. If you give up everything, as John has suggested that we do, everything for the poor, even your life itself, yet without love, profits you nothing. Do we believe that? Can we believe that? It seems beyond belief that I could do all that, yet with a horribly wrong heart about the whole thing. But it's so. Did not Jesus say there would be many who would say, Lord, Lord, did we not? Did we not? And yet be turned away on the day of judgment. We must see love as this important in our Christian walks. But too, we must see this love that we are exhorted to is as alien and as foreign to us as the land of promise was to the children of Israel. 430 years removed from it. Just as they had heard of that land, so we too have heard of this love. But the things we know from experience loom larger. We know the melons. We know the leeks and the onions of Egypt. But a land flowing with milk and honey sounds good enough, but it lies beyond a wilderness of denying ourselves, and it's populated with enemies to be defeated before it can be possessed. So it is with love. How much may I, must I deny myself in order to possess it? How many difficult brothers and sisters in Christ must I show forbearance to in order to possess that kind of love? Do we think this love comes naturally with us? Are we fooled by how much the world talks of love, sings songs of love, writes stories of love, thinking that they're writing, singing, talking about the same thing? that the Apostle's talking about here? Do we read 1 Corinthians 13 and think it beautiful rather than realize with a shock how little it resembles the love that we show? (sighs) Now, I must return to this, but at this point I realize I've not really done justice to verse 16. And the reason I haven't is because of the first words in this verse. Verse started off like this. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love, etc. Abiding in love connected with mutual abiding comes after these words. We have come to know and have believed God's love for us. And then comes a reiteration of that great truth that God is love. Only after these words do we find our brotherly love mentioned. That is because anything that could be properly called love for our brothers in Christ can only come after a right knowledge and a right belief. And what that is has been put before us in summary form in the two verses before that, verses 14 and 15. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And here is the second thing that is connected with this mutual abiding. A confession that Jesus is the Son of God upon the evidence given by the eyewitnesses, the apostolic testimony. Brothers, few are the Christians throughout history who have believed because they saw Christ, observed his life, heard his teaching, witnessed his attesting miracles, saw his crucifixion, his glorious resurrection, who saw him ascend to his father. Only the chosen handful of the first disciples was so blessed to have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The rest have been those among those, among the whoever, that confess that Jesus is the Christ. And they are more greatly blessed. Because not having seen, yet nonetheless they believe. And Christ told Doubting Thomas that that was a greater Blessing, not a lesser blessing. That is our position. Not having seen, we have yet believed. Believed what? Anything? Are we credulous? No, we believe the credible and consistent witness of those who did see and what see those things that took place regarding Christ. Who has seen and testified? The apostles have, as indeed all the eyewitnesses who are spreading the good news. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. We believe the New Testament accounts of what happened and believe the interpretation of those events given there. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Though it's put in summary form here, It involves quite a bit. If we restrict ourselves to just the Apostle John, we believe the testimony that he gives us in his gospel. He wrote that account, after all, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name, John 20, verse 31. Could we truly say that we believe Jesus is the Son of God while disbelieving John's testimony in his gospel? when he wrote the gospel for that very purpose? Or even if we are unconcerned as to what he says in his gospel, could we truly say that we believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do we love the scriptures? Do we pant for them as in a desert place? Do we treasure our time with them? Do we feel cruelly cheated if that time eludes us? Do we love the witness of the apostles? Does it thrill us to think there were 500 gathered all at once who saw the resurrected Christ? To summarize all that is said in the Gospel of John, let us merely take what he has reminded us of in this epistle. First, as John tells us in the very opening verses of this letter, first three verses, he is testifying about what he has seen, heard, touched, This is not speculative philosophy. It is the stuff of flesh and blood. Jesus Christ came in the flesh, and we do not trust any spirit that denies that. He was sent into the world, Jesus was, by whom? By the Father, for a purpose, to take away sins, to destroy the works of the devil, so that we might live through him. And this he did by being the propitiation for our sins, as the apostle states twice. So we have to accept the apostle's testimony that we are sinners, that we sin and that we have sinned, and that that sin is an affront to a holy God in whom there is no darkness at all. Wrath is due us for this, death and hell itself, but thanks be to God. Jesus was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. Wrath has been turned aside from us unto him, our atoning sacrifice, offered as a substitute in our place. All of that wrapped up in that $10 word, propitiation. Are these not fitting things to remember at Christmas time when we celebrate the birth of this one, the incarnation of the Son of God? Is it not fitting to remember why he came, the work that he was set to do, and which he most certainly accomplished? Now, having said all that, we may return to the love that we have for one another. It is only, mark this, it is only through the knowledge of Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, that I can know what this love is. The apostle, each time he mentions this love, connects it with what we know about God and his works The first time in chapter 2, he connected it with the testimony of God being light. The second time with our adoption as the sons of God, his seed abiding in us. But the latter times, he's connected it most explicitly with Jesus as the son of God, savior of the world. Chapter 3, verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. For the words that John wrote just preceding this morning's passage, verses 9 through 11, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. What are these verses saying other than that, I know nothing of love of the love of God that I am to be showing my brother apart from the love that God has shown me in Christ Jesus? How do I know love? How do I know love? He laid down his life for us. How was I shown the love of God? The father sent the son that I might live through him. Love is to be found not in any love that I have for God, for I had none. But in that, but, but in that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. I would know nothing about this love apart from the work of Christ. Do you see now why the Apostle John puts the confession of Christ, the son of God, as a sign of mutual abiding before love for one another? If I don't know Christ rightly, I will not love rightly. Again, this love is not what the world is talking about when it uses this word. Have you not noticed that what the world calls love is often what the Bible calls hatred? How many movies have you seen in which adultery is called love? Yet it is a thing hateful to God, who is love, and it is said by Paul to be a sin against one's own body. May we say a hatred of one's own body? And there are things yet further degraded that the world now also calls love and demands that we call love, which Paul says are things that God gives people over to as a judgment against them. How many times are we told that love means a letting a person go in one such degraded way or another? Do we believe things eternal or not? Do we believe that God's judgment is coming or not? Again, we must be conscious that we here are traveling through an alien land and that mutual abiding is most urgently needed. This won't come naturally. The love of God finds poor soil in this sinful heart. Nothing is easier than to let these things go. As I tell my children often upon a time of discipline or yet another lecture or a lecture repeated, that nothing would be easier for me than to let them go their own way. You can ask them, I say this. (laughs) Nothing would be easier for me than to let them go their own way. All my laziness would pull me in that direction, but I love them and the one who spares the rod hates his child. The world may at times rightly define hatred as hatred, as when a ruthless parent punishes rather than disciplines out of hatred. But in the main in this matter has defined as love what the sane Christian must only define as hatred, and vice versa. The effects of this in training children essentially to be rebellious, I could already see in my generation... And it's not getting better with successive generations. But as alien as true love, as true Christian love is to our sinful hearts, our confession of Christ as the Son of God is also a journey through an unknown land. We are told in a million ways that we need no saving. And to be saved, we must first of all acknowledge our bankruptcy and the world is dead set against that offense to our self-esteem. But this isn't a modern problem. It's not an exclusively modern problem. Each age has found the gospel of Christ offensive in one way or another. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Different ages may, like the Jews, seek for signs or like the Greeks, search for wisdom. And instead, instead it encounters what Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block and a foolishness. We are a prideful people, my brethren, that we have no hope in ourselves, no good thing to offer God, that we are sinful through and through to confess that, to confess that I have sin that must be destroyed, that my manner of life, my disposition is rightly viewed as a work of the devil that must be destroyed that I might live. That my sin needs a paying for. That I am without life, dead in sin and trespasses, without the work of another. Does a confession of that come naturally? There are a million ways in which I can subtly redefine the gospel that I might yet have something to boast in. Prideful creature that I am. I don't think it a coincidence the Galatians who are being tempted by another gospel, which is no other, are those who are warned against biting and devouring one another. If we don't have Christ right, we will not love rightly. Oh, what need there is, then, of my abiding in God and God abiding in me? This mutual abiding is my life, and I'm dead without it. I might as well be perished in a desert wilderness, my bones left to be bleached by a merciless sun. Now, I've said a number of times that this comes not naturally. This Christian brotherly love, this confession of Christ. And if not naturally, and we see that it does indeed come, then it must come supernaturally. And John has told us how it comes in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. He has given us of his Spirit. That is how he has done it. Here is the third thing connected with this mutual abiding, which John mentioned first the Holy Spirit. Here we must rise de- higher and go deeper. Here we see why this mutual abiding is in him, he in us, in rather than with. Here is where we see the blessing so much greater than the cloud of God's glory lifting and descending. Not to belittle that, not to belittle that. But if we are ever t- tempted to think them more blessed for the things they saw, as if sight is more blessed than faith, despite all the evidence to the contrary, despite all the testimony to the contrary, remember these prepositions, in, not with. John says we know our mutual abiding in God and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now, that God has given us his spirit himself, John confesses elsewhere, to be sure. Um, we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us at the end of chapter three. Likewise, earlier in this epistle and more veiled language, John wrote of the anointing that we have from God, which is an abiding anointing, which teaches us all things, which also refers to the Holy Spirit. But here, John, is written that he gives us of his spirit. And I would think that that would mean those things imparted by the Holy Spirit. So we may think of the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We may also think of the gifts of the spirit, distributed as he wills, that one may be gifted at prophecy, proclaiming God's word and preaching, another in teaching, another in hospitality, another in liberality, gifts of service, all manner of gifts so that the body is healthy. All those connections are true, but I think what John has in mind is what follows in his writing, that is, the confession of Christ and the love for one another. See in those things what he has given us of his spirit. I said these things do not come naturally. And here we see how they come. They come through the Holy Spirit. That is how we are given them. As Paul writes, First Corinthians twelve three: No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. When Peter confessed Jesus as Christ, the son of the living God, did blood, did flesh and blood reveal that to him? No, but the father in heaven through the Holy Spirit, it must surely be. Likewise, then our confession of Jesus as the son of God must likewise be viewed as of the spirit. It is of grace from first to last. We have believed the testimony of the apostles. And how did that come about? that testimony except by the Holy Spirit they were to wait in Jerusalem until the power from on high descended until the descent of that dove upon the church and then observe their preaching listen to Peter before and then listen to him after those tongues of fire fell upon them see them call to mind the words of Christ which is a work of the Holy Spirit as Jesus tells us or merely read John in his gospel or in this letter as an aged man and see how different he is than the one who has his mother ask Jesus for he and his brother to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. What a difference. What a work of the Spirit. The whole movement here in the hearts of both preacher and hearer is animated by the Holy Spirit. Nonetheless, To ever be praised. Love, likewise, is the first of the fruits of the Spirit. Or as John says in this letter, 1 John 3, words that I've read before. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The righteousness of our walk, and in particular, our love for one another, comes not naturally, but because of being born of God, being born again, being born from above. These things are of the Spirit. May Father, Son, and Holy Spirit then be praised among us. If so much of what we've examined this morning causes us to doubt our salvation, as we see the distance between our love and what is described in the Bible, and as we consider our faltering confession compared to that of the apostles, here I wish to apply a balm. Not a false comfort, not a false assurance, but what this passage of Holy Scripture teaches us. Do I find in myself any love genuine even if small for the things of God for his word for that testimony have I made it my own do I find in myself a love for God's people so I wish to be expended on their behalf if I have gifts do I wish them not to be spent on myself but for the benefit of others is there any of that flame within me If so, then I have reason for good cheer, knowing that it would come in no other way than through the Holy Spirit. Do I find the smallness of these things within me dissatisfying? Do I desire more? Is there a holy coveting, if I might put it that way, a right desiring for an abundance of confession, an abundance of love? Does my silent tongue shame me? Do the prayers forgotten from my brothers shame me? then I have good reason for cheer, knowing that these holy and right dissatisfactions would come in no other way than through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an abiding spirit, and praise be to God for that. Our abiding in God owes to his abiding in us through his Holy Spirit, that there survived a generation to enter the promised land. After all those years of wandering, is to be attributed to God's work among them. It was his doing, not theirs. Psalms 105 and 106 testify to God's faithfulness and to the people's faithlessness. All glory is given to God. So at this time of year, we have remembered the coming of the Christ child, flesh, the incarnate word of God, who came and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. He abided with us. He grew in wisdom and stature among men, and when the appointed time came, he called his disciples. And they knew it was a blessing to abide with him, and he with them. They were traveling to lands unknown to them. Fishermen were called to be fishers of men, and then later, shepherds as well. These men were given new occupations. And as anyone who's changed jobs know, a job change is a traumatic thing. They who likely traveled little became travelers and in years to come would travel further, would travel upon waters, which is probably not a comfortable thing for them. But now in all of this, what a comfort it was, Christ abiding with them and them with him. They would confess that despite the difficulties of his words sometime, where else would they go? Who else had the words of life? Did did his words sometimes seem as harsh as the land that Moses surveyed? But still, no other way to go. The clouds so led, and Jesus' words so taught. How comforted they were with Christ's presence. And so when he told them he was going away, they were saddened. And you can imagine their sadness. It was like the sad words spoken to the children of Israel, though this was not occasioned by a golden calf. True, they would all be scattered, but not lost. And Peter, with his most explicit denials, would return nonetheless to strengthen his brethren. But how great their grief must have been to hear he was going away. It was of some comfort, yes, that they would follow. But what about the time in between? Yes, he was going to prepare a place for them. So that when he would come again, he would receive them to himself. That where he was going, they might be too. Yes, but how would they manage in the meantime? Are their hearts moving like Moses' heart did? Yes, but if you don't go up with us, how will we know your favor Upon us. How will the world know that we are yours apart from your abiding with us? And so Christ gives a greater comfort and a further assurance. John 16, verses 5 through 7. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He doesn't leave because he might destroy them along the way. He leaves them so that a greater abiding might come, one that is to their advantage. How hard to imagine that must have been. They knew Christ. They knew walking with him, hearing him, seeing his works. But the tongues of fire had not yet been kindled among them. The rushing of the wind had not yet come. But even before that did come to pass, he ascended from them. And they returned to Jerusalem, how? With joy. Not sadness, but joy. When the occasion comes for his departure, they're filled with joy. They, who had been slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken, had seen him resurrected. Had been more fully taught that the Christ must suffer and then enter into his glory. And on the mountain up in Galilee, he had told them, Lo, I am with you, always, even to the end of the age. They trusted him. And not many days later, they, would re- they received the blessing, likewise promised by the prophets. And this spirit would abide in them, and they, through its abiding, would abide in him. May the Father who sent the Son be praised. May the Son who sent the abiding Spirit from the Father be praised. May the Spirit who sends of himself such things into our very hearts as a right knowledge and belief of the Son and a Christian love for one another be praised. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is rich beyond measure. How, Heavenly Father, you have put in these strokes of a pen in the language of men, Lord, and translated into other languages, how you have put such richness of your revelation is a wonder to us. Oh, Heavenly Father, we rejoice in what you have given us. We rejoice, Heavenly Father, in your Holy Spirit. Given to us and the things of Him given to us, Lord. May we count these things as greatly treasured. <clears throat> May we count that Spirit as, as an earnest, a seal, Lord. May we look forward to the inheritance that we have laid up in the heavenlies. Lord, these things are wondrous, and yet more wondrous things are promised us. It staggers us, Lord. I pray, Heavenly Father, your blessing upon this preaching of your word. I pray, Heavenly Father, that in our drinking it in, I pray, Heavenly Father, that it would be a reveling in it. All the reasons, Heavenly Father, that the world gives for parting empty and shallow. Oh, but this, Heavenly Father, this is this is most wondrous, it is greatly an occasion for us to be filled with joy <clears throat> to rejoice before you. I pray, Heavenly Father, that our voices, as they're lifted in this final song, Be lifted joyously. It is fitting for you, Lord, who has given us these things. Your blessing upon it, Lord. May Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be glorified. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.